thank you so much and welcome to the Transportation and Logistics Podcast powered by Atlanta Dispatch and Humblebee Enterprises. I am very excited to be here today with a very special guest. Uh, we got Brother Brandon Wiseman of Truck Safe Consulting. And before we begin, I just want to say thank you. Thank you very much to the people who have been tuning in with me from day one. And of course, those who have joined me uh, in the recent months. Uh, very, very grateful to have been able to build this platform on Clubhouse and then uh, be pushed by family members and friends uh, to actually take that content and put it onto a podcast. So um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm extremely grateful and uh, just thank you. And also, as mentioned in the last discussion, uh, Georgia's U.S. Senate seat was up for grabs as recently as yesterday. Uh, but Reverend Raphael Warnock pulled it out. He was declared the winner after a nail biter. So 06 to that good brother. And uh, again, a voteless people is a hopeless people. So if you don't use your voice, you are essentially are giving up your power. So um, yeah, just take part in the democratic process when you get a chance. Uh, without further ado, Brandon, how are you doing today, man? Hey, Jory. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. You hear this? This guy is silky smooth. <laughs> you sound great, man. Well, I'm happy to have you here on the podcast. And uh, for the folks who have never heard of TruckSafe, uh, what is it and how did you get into this space as a whole? Yeah, so TruckSafe is a, um, uh, a DOT compliance consulting firm at its heart. Um, it's a company I started in early 2021 after spending about a decade or so um, working at a large law firm um, as a transportation attorney, working primarily in the area of DOT compliance. So um, had, a, had a great opportunity working with that firm, representing some of the largest trucking companies in the country on issues of DOT compliance specifically. So uh, one of the few attorneys in the country, I think, that specialized exclusively in DOT compliance. So that got me a lot of good experience working with the regulations day in and day out. Um, obviously, there's a lot that goes into maintaining a compliant trucking company. And so, um, yeah, it was never a dull day. And so uh, 2021 came around. Um, and decided it was time to break off on my own, start something of my own. So I started TruckSafe um, primarily to get a little more hands-on um, with, with training and developing a lot of content around DOT compliance. I felt that was lacking in the industry, was good compliant or, or good compliance-related materials for trucking company owners and safety managers and safety directors all about kind of the ins and outs of, of the regulations and how uh, how to you know kind of practically deal with them on a day in day day out um, basis so that was the idea behind truck safe so uh, launched that and um, have developed a lot of online courses all centered around this this one topic and I've uh, had the pleasure of working with a lot of trucking companies of all types and sizes over the last couple of years through TruckSafe and um, and a related law firm. So we also started, my business partner and I also started a small law firm called Childress Law where we continue to practice law in this niche area. So that's me in a nutshell. Got you, man. Got you. Look, and a lot of uh, the listeners here, 
uh, they are small business owners and, you know, maybe even looking to to launch that. How has it been for you? Because you just mentioned not one, but two, you know, <laughs> you know, things that you just opened, you just started that you're putting your energy into. How, how's that going? I really enjoy it. Um, you know, before I even went to law school, uh, I in high school, I started my own video production business. I, uh, I had been working for a video production business early on in high school, kind of running cameras and stuff like that. And then uh, the owner of that company moved out of town and uh, there was a need locally for someone to kind of pick up the contracts that he had with schools and sporting events and stuff like that. So um, I got bit by the entrepreneurship bug early on, started a, a video production business. And that kind of put me through college put me through law school and uh, really enjoyed that always enjoyed running my business doing that and then you know finished up law school and uh, kind of put that video business to the side for a while but um, always kind of missed it so yeah doing the back to running my own business has been great and very uh, fulfilling to me for sure well nice i can definitely tell that's why you sound silky smooth you've been <laughs> on the production side of things since you were a teenager i mean yeah. how do you feel about it i mean like do you feel like uh everybody should have some type of uh i'm not going to just say work experience because yours was more specific before you got to college well, let me just ask you this you know I know that I, I feel like I would have gotten a lot more value out of college had I had just a little bit of real world experience uh, beforehand. Do you feel like that, uh, you know, basically taking on contracts as a teenager gave you a little bit more to kind of kind of see differently when you were in college? Yeah, definitely. I mean, because I, I went to undergraduate studying marketing and uh, putting immediately to use the concepts that I was learning uh, in my marketing classes. So it wasn't as theoretical as it would have been otherwise. It was actually practical to me. So I think having that experience and being in that position made the, uh, you know, the education a lot more meaningful to me and useful to me for sure. Yeah, that's what's up, man. Prayerfully, people are hearing this and uh, they, you know, are in a spot to take advantage of this information. Um, so, all right. When it comes down to it, though, you know, you've been operating now for over a year. Um, what do you feel like you're spending the most amount of time on? Like, is there a particular topic that you're advising on or consulting on? Like, how does that look? Yeah, so, uh, you know, kind of ebbs and flows in the transportation industry, as everyone here probably understands, you know there'll be one hot button issue that's kind of going making its rounds for a month or two and then it'll switch to something else so um you know over this past year or so there were a lot of new rule makings that came out that all kind of took the spotlight for a while you know we talk about like entry-level driver training that was a big issue early on in the year uh, as well as um, the drug and alcohol clearinghouse going back a couple of years now. So, you know, every every once in a while, it's something big that comes out of, uh, out of the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration that then we spend a lot of time dealing with, uh, not only counseling clients on, but also, uh, I mentioned earlier, a lot of the content that we're putting out. So we spend a lot of time developing content and, and trying to get as much information out there as we can so that... Um, you know, everyone has access to 
the information and, and breaking it down into layman's terms. I think that's where um, a lot of trucking companies tend to get themselves kind of mixed up as, as they're trying to interpret sometimes pretty complex uh, regulations that come out of the agency, and so it, it's helpful, I've found, to um, to get them a, a practical take on those regulations, so that's what we're trying to provide. Okay, got you. So you mentioned the clearinghouse. For the folks who are new to the industry looking to get into it, uh, when did the what is the clearinghouse, when did it come to be, and what's the update um, yeah. that we're looking to, 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 to see next year? Yeah, so the Federal Drug and Alcohol Clearinghouse was implemented in uh, January of 2020, January 6th of 2020. Um, and it's essentially a centralized database of drug and alcohol testing violation data for all CDL drivers that are operating in the United States. So um, the idea with the Clearinghouse is that it's going to be a repository for all violation data so that when trucking companies are hiring new CDL drivers, they can go to this one central place to look up whether that driver has previously tested positive for drugs or alcohol or violated the drug and alcohol testing regulations in other ways. And that way they know if they're prohibited from operating a commercial motor vehicle because of those past violations. And they can look and see if you know, maybe they have had a, a, a violation in the past, but the system will tell me whether they've completed the, the required return to duty process to be able to then operate a commercial motor vehicle going forward. So that's the whole idea with the clearinghouse. It, um, it, the idea was that it's going to take the place of what has traditionally been uh, a pretty manual process where trucking companies have had to uh, manually reach out to a prospective driver's previous employers and ask these types of drug and alcohol questions. You know, if, uh, you know, if John Doe is applying to work at um, Walmart as a truck driver, as a CDL truck driver, and, uh, you know, Walmart has him fill out his application um, when he comes to work for Walmart, one of the things that gets asked in that ask application is list all of your, your previous DOT-regulated employers over the past 10 years is usually what they ask for. And uh, the reason that the regulations require that is then because Walmart now has an obligation to reach out to any DOT regulated employers that John Doe worked for in the three years prior to applying to Walmart and asking those employers, hey, did John Doe ever test positive for drugs or alcohol while operating for you? And so you can imagine that um, you know, that, that manual process was a, a pretty big burden on trucking companies. And, and oftentimes you would send out those previous employer uh, requests and you would never get any responses back. So it was kind of pointless anyway. Mm -hmm. So the whole purpose of the clearinghouse is to kind of consolidate all of that information in one place that makes it easy for uh, subsequent employers to query that clearinghouse and get the information they need to make an informed decision on whether to hire a driver or not. Yeah, that all makes sense. And is there something changing in this process coming up? Yeah, so January 6th of 2023, so next month, um, will be three years that the clearinghouse has been in existence. And so the regulations are built such that on January 6th, 2023, um, something is going to change. And, and what's going to change is, 
you know, when the clearinghouse was first set up, it, it didn't have any information in it because we rely on employers to report information to the clearinghouse. And so when it was first set up January 6, 2020, if I query the clearinghouse, there's just no data in the system. So we needed a period of time, uh, kind of almost like a pilot period where we start to gather information. And so the DOT set a three-year time period where the clearinghouse um, was going to be kind of in this pilot phase where we're going to start gathering information. And then once we hit January 6, 2023, that'll be three years. We have a full three years worth of data in the clearinghouse. So now as of that date, uh, motor carriers, when they're hiring CDL drivers, uh, they will no longer have to do that manual process of, of reaching out to previous employers and asking those drug and alcohol questions. They will now use the clearinghouse exclusively to get that type of information because in this three-year time period, they've had to do both things. They've had to run clearinghouse queries, and they've had to manually continue to reach out to previous employers, and obviously that's been duplicative. Um, they've been getting the same information through those manual queries as they get through the clearinghouse. So, long story short, January 6, 2023, um, it will be exclusively the clearinghouse where we get the, that drug and alcohol testing information for prospective drivers. Gotcha. Gotcha. So is that saying that, um, all right, let's just say that we have X number of students in a truck driving school, right? Mm -hmm. And they're going to be graduating, getting their, you know, they're going to advance to get their CDL. Are yeah. we saying that automatically they have to get, um, you know, tested and, or entered into the clearinghouse upon getting their commercial driver's license. And that's the reason why a person, I mean, a, a yeah. potential employee, uh, excuse me, employer wouldn't have to do it at that point. No. So getting the CDL isn't the trigger for the clearinghouse. It's being employed by a, a motor carrier as a CDL driver is the trigger. So when, whenever, let's say I, I finish my driving school, I've got my CDL. Now I go to a, a trucking company and I'm trying to get a job at that trucking company. Well, in order to get a job at that trucking company, one of the things that they're going to have to do is run a pre-employment drug and alcohol clearinghouse query on me. And in order for them to run that query on me, as the driver, I'm going to have to register for a clearinghouse account and give them the consent to run that query on me. So that's kind of how it works. Now, as a new CDL driver, you know, the idea is that, or, or the hope is that there isn't any information about me when they run that query because I haven't worked in a CDL capacity in the past. So only CDL drivers are subject to, to the federal drug and alcohol testing rules. So um, if, I, if I didn't have a CDL before, then there shouldn't be any drug and uh, DOT-related drug and alcohol uh, data in the system when I go apply to that new motor carrier. So the system is really more geared towards drivers who are moving between motor carriers, and we want to make sure that the motor carriers, when they're hiring these CDL drivers, have a, have a full picture of that driver's drug and alcohol testing past. Okay, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And truth be told, I have a client, a dispatch client of mine, who has been going through drivers like none other. Mm. So uh, in your opinion or your experience, I say, uh, how long after uh, somebody is hired and they go through the clearinghouse process or at least giving that consent for that motor carrier to pull mm. their information, uh, would you say the typical turnaround is before they can actually start driving? For well, the, rate, 
Yeah, so the regulations just say that the motor carrier has to get a negative, well, so two things. So there's the clearinghouse side of things, and then there's an actual pre-employment drug screen that has to be run uh, before that driver can drive. So the regulations say that if I'm a motor carrier and I'm hiring a new CDL driver, I have to, number one, get him or her tested for drugs uh, as a pre-employment drug screen, and I can't let him or her operate a commercial motor vehicle under my DOT number until I get a negative test result back. So that takes some time. Um, it just kind of depends on you know, how quickly you can get the driver in for the collection and then how quickly you can get the results back. I would say uh, on average it's going to be a week or less that, that you get that test result back. Um, and then the other side of that is the clearinghouse side of things, which is that carrier also has to run a query on that driver, a pre-employment query, and get a, a result back from that query that either says this driver is good to go, no no violations to worry about in the past, or the driver has a violation in the past and, and needs to go through the return to duty process. They'll get an immediate response to that query that they run through the clearinghouse. So that's not the hang up. It's going to be getting the actual test result from the pre-employment drug screen. That will be the hang up, if anything. Gotcha, gotcha. And, you know, as it pertains to just, you know, going through that democratic process and certain recreational drugs, you mm -hmm. know, being out on the market in certain areas, um, does that affect the clearinghouse in the way that oh, yeah. they view those results? Oh, yeah. So that's a big issue going on right now is, <clears throat> you know, the legal legalization of marijuana in various states. And, uh, you know, either for recreational or for medicinal purposes. And then also we've got kind of CBD, which is playing into the analysis. And so that's become a big debate in the industry. But it really is a, a simple answer. And I think people get confused about this. But, but here's the here's the bottom line when it comes to marijuana. So marijuana remains illegal at the federal level, even though it, it may be lawful in some states. So the federal government still considers it a Schedule One illegal drug. And so what that means practically is that if you're a federally regulated driver, meaning you're subject to the federal safety regulations, it's still unlawful for you to use marijuana, even if it happens to be, Ill uh, happens to be lawful in your particular state. So you cannot drive a commercial motor vehicle while you're using marijuana. That's, that's a bright line rule. Um, and so if you are and then you test positive for marijuana on a drug test, which is far and away the most common drug that's found in a, in a drug test, well, then you're going to be prohibited from operating a commercial motor vehicle going forward unless you go through that return to duty process. So long story short, marijuana is a no-go for commercial drivers. Um, but the more interesting question nowadays is, is what about CBD? So a lot of folks are, are using CBD for pain management and, and that type of stuff. And CBD itself is pretty much lawful in every state in the country. The problem we have with CBD is that um, there's virtually no regulation from the FDA whatsoever on the manufacturers of that CBD product. And so what we are having is CBD manufacturers putting product out there where the label uh, uh, represents that the product does not contain any THC. THC is the psychoactive compound of marijuana that uh, produces the high effect. And that's what causes a, a positive test result for marijuana. Um, so you can, you can imagine why CBD manufacturers want to market their product as containing little to no THC because they don't want people to worry that they're going to test positive for marijuana. The problem is 
since there's virtually no regulation of those manufacturers, it's turning out that a lot of them on the packaging are, are false. The product does contain THC. And so we've seen this pop up all over the country. There's a lot of lawsuits pending by drivers who have, who have relied on the representations from the CBD manufacturers and taken the CBD product thinking that it contains no THC. And then they go take a drug test for their motor carrier and they test positive for marijuana because the product did contain THC. Well, now that driver might as well have been smoking marijuana because it's, it's, it's the same, same consequence. Now they're prohibited from operating a commercial motor vehicle. Now they have to go through the return to duty process if they ever want to drive a truck again. So it's a big problem. And so for that reason, I always counsel my clients that, you know, CBD is, is kind of a no-go until we get some uh, tighter regulations, more stringent regulations on the manufacturers of the product. Gotcha. And, you know, the return to work program, you know, training. Mm -hmm. Are you a fan of SAP programs? Uh, I don't know that I've given it much thought of whether I'm a fan of it or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately what it comes down to is, yeah, if you, t if you, have, if you have a drug and alcohol violation in your past the return to duty process mandates that you go visit a substance abuse professional you go through their educational program you you convince them that uh that that you're good to go and then they you know schedule you for a a, a return to duty test if you pass that test then you're good to start operating again and then you're going to be subject to some follow-up test at whatever schedule the SAP recommends. So, I mean, it, it is what it is. That's been the process for the last uh, couple of decades now. And uh, yeah, that's just the, that's just the lay of the land for that. The, the bigger problem I think is, you know, let's say you, you go through that process, you've done everything that the government tells you you have to do to get back in the truck. Well, now, you're, you're faced with finding an employer who's willing to hire you with your drug and alcohol testing violation in the past. Because practically speaking, there's a lot of trucking companies out there that won't even consider you uh, for a, a driving position if you have a drug or alcohol testing violation in the past, even if you've done everything the government has said you have to do. Just because those motor carriers, um, they view it as risky, and, and rightfully so, because you know looking at this from the trucking company side of things, you know, if I hire a driver who has a drug or alcohol testing violation in the past, and then let's say he, he or she is out on the road and they get involved in a catastrophic accident and it turns out that, that they still have a drug or alcohol testing uh, or drug or alcohol problem, and that comes out in that litigation that you went ahead and hired that driver knowing about their past, you know, that's just not going to play well to a jury and that, that could, you know, exacerbate the damages in that case. So I understand it from that perspective as to why they are hesitant to, uh, to hire drivers with that type of pass. But at the same time, I also see it from the driver's side of things, which is, hey, I, that's behind me. I've done everything the government has told me to do. I'm ready to get back to work. So it's, it's kind of a, uh, 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 an issue. Well, I know that you, you know, in your, your life as a lawyer, you defended motor carriers had you have you ever been in that type of situation where you know the motor carrier did know about the past of a of a of a driver and that person did get into like some type of accident 
Yeah, so I'm lucky in that I've never been a litigator, so I've always managed. Okay. I've man, I've always managed to stay out of the courtroom, and I've stuck primarily to regulatory issues. But I've certainly advised. So when I was at the the large law firm previously, we had a whole uh, segment of attorneys that did highway accident litigation, and I certainly, you know, consulted with them on some of the cases that they were involved with. And yeah, it, it comes up all literally all the time, where a trucking company. Uh, you know, hires a driver and that becomes the big issue in the case is that driver's background. Whether it's a drug and alcohol problem in the past or more commonly that driver had a, a pretty poor driving history. They had a lot of moving violations. They had a lot of uh, accidents in the past, yet we went ahead and hired them anyway. That comes up in a lot of those lawsuits and, and it's those types of issues that are contributing to the types of nuclear verdicts that we're seeing nowadays, these multi-million dollar verdicts issued against trucking companies. Um, a lot of those are driven by the hiring practices of the motor carrier when it comes to what they did or didn't do to vet the their driver's past. Okay, you know, I, I completely hear you there. Um, when it comes to like an accident, right, what triggers uh, the need for testing, drug testing that is? Yeah, so again, keep in mind that the federal drug and alcohol testing rules apply only to CDL drivers. So if you're operating the larger equipment that requires a CDL or if you're transporting placardable amounts of hazmat or if you're transporting a lot of passengers, those are the types of drivers that are subject to the federal drug and alcohol testing rules. Um, so that's when the, the federal rules come in and say that there are certain things that that require a, a test. Obviously, there's the pre-employment testing that we already talked about. There are random tests that are required, uh, and then post-accident testing. So um, when it comes to post-accident testing, essentially the rules say that um, there are three types of accidents that would require you as the motor carrier to um, ensure that your driver gets tested for, for drugs and alcohol after that accident. The first type of accident is any accident involving a fatality. So if anybody dies in connection with, with an accident, um, that's going to require that the CDL driver be tested for drugs and alcohol. The other two types hinge on whether or not the, the CDL driver received a citation for a moving violation in connection with that accident. And those two accident types are, number one, any involving a, a uh, personal injury to any party that requires that person to be um, treated immediately away from the scene for those injuries. Uh, and then the second accident type is any that requires uh, any of the vehicles to be towed away from the scene due to disabling damage. So um, any one of those three types of accidents would, would mandate that the driver, that the CDL driver be tested for drugs and alcohol. Gotcha, gotcha. So accidents happen all the time, obviously. It's trucking, it's a lot of moving, it's mm -hmm. a lot of you know, it's a lot of people that are, you know, uh, cutting you off. You know, I've seen it, you know, so it's, it's, it's a thing. It's, an, it's a normal part of the thing. Um, for our motor carriers who are listening, um, you know, what, what should they do during an accident? You know, are, is there any way they should prepare? Is there anything yeah. that they should already have in the truck and some guidelines, procedures ready to uh, that kind of direct the driver as to what to do when that happens? Yeah, we actually just did, uh, so we have our own podcast, it's called Truck Safe Live, and we actually just did a show, our most recent show was on this topic specifically, which is, 
you know, what, what to do immediately following a, a commercial motor vehicle accident. And uh, we had some guests on, some you know, from insurance companies, and then also a accident reconstructionist was on with us to talk through this. And yeah, there are certainly things that need to be done post-accident. And the big takeaway from the show that we did was uh, you need to plan ahead for this because the last thing you really want to be doing is in that, in that context, you know, it's a very stressful event. Everybody's, you know, you know, the driver may be in shock. Um, you as the carrier are dealing with a million different things at that moment. You don't want to have to be figuring out in that moment, hey, what do the regulations require of me? What, what do I need to do to best protect myself if this leads to litigation? That's the last thing you want to be doing in that moment. So a lot uh, or pre-planning um, for this goes a long way here. And, uh, and the other thing that I typically recommend to my clients, and we talked about this in our show, is the importance of having a, a post-accident checklist in all of your vehicles or, or you know, whether it's trucks or buses or whatever, making sure that your drivers have a checklist that they can just walk through step by step again so that you know in that state of shock you're not relying on the driver to try and remember exactly what it is that he or she is supposed to be doing they can just move down the checklist and you know chief among the things that should be on that checklist are number one you know staying in contact with the motor carrier and making them immediately aware aware of the accident so that the motor carrier can then kick off the things that it needs to be doing you know, like contacting its insurance company um, for the more serious accidents, getting attorneys involved, preserving the evidence, that type of stuff. And then also certainly post-accident drug and alcohol testing um, because, you know, there are time frames associated with those things. Like the, the alcohol tests have to be conducted within the first two hours of the accident. The drug tests have to be conducted within the first 32 hours. So, you know, there are ticking clocks here, and it's important that we get things done on time. So I think that having that checklist in the truck or the bus is, is, a, is a big part of it. Uh, yes, sir. I do remember those checklists. Uh, I learned how to dispatch when I was working for a major corporation, a corporation that had about six, 700 trucks. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, those procedures were definitely <laughs> in, in each one of those trucks. So um, very important stuff right there. Um, and you guys can just check out his episodes to, to get the other details um, pertaining to what to do yeah, uh, when you're in an accident. Yeah, do that because some of the most interesting information that came out of that show was from the accident reconstructionist that we had on who was explaining you know, what his role is in that and what he recommends that fleets do in order to best preserve evidence. Because nowadays with technology being the way it is, you know, we have ELDs on the trucks or buses, we have telematics devices, we have cameras in some circumstances. And, you know, all of that um, data that comes out of those systems can be critical in whatever litigation follows from that accident. It's very often critical in that litigation. And making sure that you're taking the right steps to preserve that evidence immediately after the accident is very important. He gave an example of uh, one, one case that he was involved with where um, driver was involved in the accident. Uh, the, the, the vehicle was equipped with, um, with uh, forward-facing video cameras and the, the system that they were using for the cameras was set up so that it would retain video clips for a short amount of time. I think it was less than a week. And then after a week's time, it would 
convert the video into just still frames, like every couple seconds or so there would be one still, still frame rather than the full video. And so in that case, the motor carrier didn't realize that that was the record retention of its, of its camera provider, and so it lost out all of the lost all of the video that would have been helpful in that litigation and it was left with just some still frames uh, from right before the accident so that's why it's critical um, that you that you think about that stuff ahead of time so that you don't find yourself in that position after the fact yes sir yes sir uh, well this right here this discussion was entitled tuning up the operation and you know, again, I've had motor carriers who are my dispatch clients that, let's just say, I'll call on a load that I see posted on a load board. And when I am telling the broker the MC number, they might say, hmm, I don't know. <laughs> Your safety score is not looking too good, bro. And, yep. uh, you know, because of this particular client, it's not saying that you can't work on other loads, but this particular customer that we have, we can't use you. Mm-hmm. Um, when, it, when, you when, when we hear stuff like that, what is that talking about? Is that the CSA score uh, or is that like what's happening right there, you believe? Yeah, it really just kind of depends on on the shipper that you're talking about. So, you know, looking at this from the shippers or the broker's perspective, you know, they're starting to get pulled into the these cases where the truck where their trucks that they have used to haul their goods uh, have been involved in an accident. Because you can imagine, you know, if I'm a trucking company today, uh, a smaller trucking company. The government tells me that I have to have $750,000 of commercial auto liability insurance. That's the minimum uh, if I haul general commodities. $750,000 nowadays does not go a long way when it comes to um, you know, the injuries or the deaths that can come out of a significant accident. That $750,000 limit has been in place since the 80s. Um, and so with that not going that long of a way in connection with those accidents, the plaintiffs in those cases are, are you know, always looking for the deeper pocket. Where can, I, where can I get access to the money that will make me whole or at least as close to whole as possible um, as a result of my injuries? I've got all of these medical bills racking up, that type of stuff. You know, and if we exhaust the motor carrier's insurance limits, and let's say that that trucking company has virtually no assets um, that's not my solution so where else can I look well they start to look up the chain and so as they move up the chain then we're starting to look at the brokers and shippers who in most cases are going to have the deep much deeper pockets and so what we've seen over the last couple of decades is that shippers and brokers have been pulled into these lawsuits and more and more are being found liable in these cases usually on um, usually on the theory that they were negligent in selecting the motor carrier that they selected to haul their freight. The, the plaintiffs will argue that the, that the shipper or the broker had a duty to use reasonable care in selecting a safe motor carrier and that they didn't do so and that because of that, then that led to the plaintiff's injuries. So because of these types of lawsuits becoming more and more prominent, shippers and brokers have started to kind of bolster their carrier selection protocol. What do we need to do to best protect ourselves from these types of cases and make sure that we are doing our due diligence and making sure that we're only hiring safe motor carriers? So every shipper and broker is a little bit different um, in terms of what they look at 
um, when they're hiring motor carriers. Uh, some of them get really detailed, and, and those are the ones that may be looking at CSA scores and that type of stuff if they're able to get access to it. Um, but I would say most often what I see as, as mostly the case is shippers and brokers are looking primarily at, number one, do you have a valid DOT number? That's a must. Number two, do you have the right level of insurance on file? Uh, that's a must as well. And then beyond that, it, it may usually comes down to like your out-of-service rates. How frequently are your vehicles and your drivers being placed out of service for serious violations? Do your out-of-service rates exceed the national averages? That type of stuff. That That's usually, in my experience, what they're looking at. And then also your safety rating. Um, it, it, are you unrated? Do you have a satisfactory rating? Do you have a conditional rating? You'll see a lot of shipper and broker contracts that say we don't do business with a conditionally rated motor carrier, for example. Gotcha. And when it comes to those out-of-service rates, I mean, is the only way to improve that is to push your motor, your drivers to, you know, go get inspected so that, you know, you, you, you have a, you're basically yeah. saying if you were put out of service one or two times that now uh, you are adding more times into the mix so that it lowers the percentage yeah i mean and that's easier said than done right because what i've heard from our motor carrier clients is that it's tougher and tougher to to number one get an inspection a, a voluntary inspection uh, and number two to get one that's clean so in other words if if your drivers are getting pulled over uh, it's likely that there's going to be some type of violation written up. So it's becoming tougher and tougher to get a clean inspection. And so what do you do then? How do you, how do you improve your out-of-service rates? Well, a couple of things. So number one, you got to keep in mind that the violations in the system uh, persist in the system for a period of 24 months. So your out-of-service rates are based on how many out-of-service violations you've had over the last 24 month period. So as your violations become older, they will eventually fall off and no longer impact your out of service rates. But that's a long time that they're gonna persist in the system. The other thing to keep in mind is the, um, is the FMCSA's data queue system. This is the system that motor carriers can use to appeal violations that are attributed to them if there's a reason to appeal it. So if, for example, the officer writes you up for a violation and you believe that he or she just misinterpreted the regulation or got something wrong, then you can use that data queue system to get that violation removed from your account and then it doesn't uh, impact your out-of-service rate anymore. So that's, that's the prime, those are the two primary ways that your out-of-service rates improve are the old violations falling off, new ones being taken off through the data queue system, or as you mentioned, Jory, getting a, a clean inspection, which will, um, which will help certainly if you can get those. Right, right. I, I bet they are pretty challenging, uh, just to make sure that, you know, it, they're challenging. I mean, it seems to me that complying with everything, uh, with all the regulations, is a it's a job in itself. So yeah. definitely employing, you know, folks who, you know, services like yourself, like. Um, uh, what's that brother's name? Hunter's uh, company. Oh, Log Rock. Yeah. Right, right, right. Uh, we got DeMarco. We've had his company up here. Um, Fleet Drive 360s because yeah. these things are very important um, because it's, it's a full time job staying on top of this type of stuff. <laughs> it is. And, you know, the thing I'll, I'll mention and to keep in mind here is that, you know, those out of service rates are based on out of service violations. So not every violation is, is an out of service violation. If you just get some 
you know, violations are inevitable. It's, it's the nature of operating uh, uh, commercial motor vehicles on the highways. You're going to get violations. I'm not so concerned with the ticky-tack violations that you get here or there. It's the more serious violations that I get concerned about and that shippers and brokers get concerned about and that your insurance companies get concerned about. And that's a much smaller universe of potential violations uh, that constitute an out-of-service condition. Um, you know, the Commercial Vehicle Safety Alliance, CVSA, is the one that is the group that publishes the out-of-service criteria and the list of violations that constitute out-of-service violations. It's those types of more serious violations that you really need to work on and trying to avoid because those are the ones that can get you in, in the most trouble. And so what I've found over, over the years is that, um, number one, you got to understand what your data is telling you. So if you're not watching your roadside inspections and, your, and the violations that are being attributed to your account, then you're just blind to what, what's causing the problems and you can't do anything to fix it. So number one, you need to, to be you know, periodically tracking your roadside violations through your CSA account and seeing, kind of looking at the trends and, and where are my drivers having problems? Where are my vehicles having problems? And then you can work to develop a solution to those problems, at least to the ones that are the more serious violations. That's really the trick here is, is developing the right policies and the right procedures to avoid those more serious violations, and that will drive down your scores, that will drive down your out-of-service rates, and uh, that will help you in a lot of areas, including accessing premium freight, keeping your insurance premiums low, keeping you out of the DOT's crosshairs, that type of stuff. Gotcha, gotcha. And when I hear it, you know, it says CSA scores. It makes me think like it's a passing score. Would you get a hundred? Like, talk, talk. What are CSA scores? And uh, you know, if somebody's CSA scores aren't looking too good, is it easy to 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 increase those to to get to the next level? Yeah, CSA scores are the opposite of the school grading that we're used to, where the higher higher the score, the better. In, in grade school, you definitely don't want the higher scores in the CSA program. You want to keep your scores as low as possible. So CSA is uh, it stands for Compliance, Safety, Accountability. This is the FMCSA's um, kind of prioritization tool, its main prioritization tool. This is the system the agency uses to prioritize motor carriers for enforcement, usually in the form of audits or more frequent roadside inspections. So the higher your scores get, the more likely it is you're going to get a knock at the door from the DOT for an audit, or the more likely it is that your vehicles are going to be pulled over more frequently for an inspection. So keeping your scores low is the name of the game. Um, and how do you do that? To your question, Jory, um, you know, again, it's one of those things where there's no magic wand to keep your, your scores low. But, you know, first things first, again, you got to understand what's contributing to your scores. So that's why it's important, you know, if there's anything to say about, anything good to say about the FMCSA CSA system is at least it gives you access to a wealth of data that you need to, uh, to be able to track trends, compliance-related trends, and figure out what we need to do to fix things. So it's fairly easy to tell if you log into your CSA system what's going you know, wrong. Uh, during these roadside inspections. So the system is taking into account all violations that have been found on your vehicles or drivers during roadside inspections, again, over the last 24-month period, and it's ranking you against similarly situated motor carriers. So other motor carriers with a similar 
operating characteristics as yourself, it's ranking you in seven categories. These are known as the basics. These are your CSA scores. So it's things like hours of service is one category, vehicle maintenance is another, unsafe driving, driver fitness, drug and alcohol testing, hazmat, that type of stuff. And uh, they, they are percentile scores. So it's on a scale of one to 100. Uh, for example, if you have a score of 90% in the hours of service category, that means you're performing worse than 90% of your peers in Ooh. that category. So <laughs> it's obviously something to avoid there. So, you know, the real trick here, again, is getting into the system, becoming familiar with it. You can drill down into each of your scores. You can see what violations are causing it to be elevated. You can see which drivers are causing it to be elevated, which vehicles are causing them to be elevated. And then you can develop your plan for addressing those violations and keeping them from reoccurring in the future. And that's how you drive down your CSA scores. It's not quick. There's no, again, magic wand to fix them. It takes time, it takes effort, but it certainly can be done. Gotcha. And out of those seven things, I believe, the basic mm -hmm. scores, um, are any of those graded higher? Do they have a higher, you know, more weighted average than the others? They all have their own um, scoring methodology. There's like a 200 page document on the FMCSA's website if you're ever interested in <laughs> how they calculate your, your basic scores. Uh, I've read through that thing more, more times than I care to count. But um, yeah, so the way that it works is that every conceivable violation that you can think of you know, getting down to things like a burnout headlight. That's one conceivable violation that is assigned to the vehicle maintenance category. And then every conceivable violation has a, sever a severity weight that is assigned to it by the agency that essentially tells you how serious of a violation it is. So you can imagine things like, you know, if, if a driver has a DUI, you know, that goes to the drug and alcohol basic, that is going to have the most uh, that's going to have the highest severity weight because that's the most likely to cause a crash. So uh, those severity weights are on a scale of 1 to 10, uh, and, and every conceivable violation has a severity weight. The more serious violations weigh heavier on your scores in each of the categories. Gotcha. You know, this, this is really making me think about uh, those drivers who are not utilizing their ELDs correctly mm -hmm. and what that really is doing or potentially doing uh, to the motor carrier that they're, you know, running up under. So that's kind of yeah. like where I was gearing to as far as like, you know, how heavy is this stuff when somebody's not certifying their law yeah. or they're driving uh, you know, a, a full day <laughs> without, yeah, right. being, without even being logged in. Like, what, what kind of, what hours, of hours of service issues are far and away the biggest problem for most motor carriers. Um, and, you know, log falsification is one of the most common violations that's discovered roadside. And these types of violations are problematic for a few reasons. Number one, those types of things, log falsifications, and, and any substantive violation of the hours of service rules. So drivers operating in excess of his 11 hour rule, all of those are out of service violations. So those are the more serious violations that jack up your out of service rate, your driver out of service rate. They also jack up your hours of service basic score. And here's the real kicker that a lot of motor carriers don't realize. Let's say that your hours of service score is elevated. And so that causes the DOT to come in and do an audit of your records. 
when they come in and audit, they are looking at a variety of factors. They're looking at your, your compliance in a lot of different factors. Hours of service is the only factor where the violations that the officers discover in, a, in an audit are double weighted. So what that means, practically speaking, is that if, if, an, if an investigator comes in and does an audit of your operations and they find a critical level of hours of service violations, which is frankly not that hard to find, because those violations are double weighted, practically what that means is you're not going to get out of that audit with anything better than a conditional safety rating. That's the reality of the seriousness of the hours of service violations. So that, that's something I like to um, you know, really get out there to motor carriers and, and hope that they understand because I've seen so many motor carriers fail audits because of hours of service problems alone. It can really sink you. Oh, I believe it. I can definitely believe it. Um, you know, when it comes to, you just said the safety rating, you would not even, uh, you know, at most it'd be conditional. Mm-hmm. Why, do you find that the terms are a bit confusing, you know, just because it's safety rating, your safety score? Like, <laughs> it, it seems a little, you know, give, give something a different name. So <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Well, so I, it's hard to separate myself and look at it from an outsider's perspective because I've been dealing with it day in and day out for literally 15 years now. And so these things are second nature to me. But I can envision, you know, looking from the outside in that all of these various safety metrics are, are confusing. And, you know, the way I always kind of look at it is a safety rating is kind of tied to audits. So those are what you get if you've been through a full audit by the DOT. Most carriers in the country, I think upwards of 80% of the motor carriers operating in the U.S. don't have a safety rating. They're unrated because they've never been through a a full DOT audit. Um, And those ratings are, you're either unsatisfactory, conditional, or unsatisfactory unsatisfactory safety rating. Um, And those are, those safety ratings of all the safety metrics that we've talked about today, the out of service rates, the CSA scores, and the safety rating, that safety rating is, is the most important because it dictates whether you get to keep operating or not. If you get an unsatisfactory safety rating following an audit, your business is going to be shut down by the DOT and you're going to be prohibited from operating. Um, if you get a conditional rating, you can keep operating, but again, most shippers and brokers don't want to do business with a conditionally rated carrier. So that safety rating is something you got to protect at all costs. The other metrics that we've talked about are more about prioritizing motor carriers for those audits. They are the metrics that are used by the DOT to prioritize carriers, uh, you know, because the DOT is a fairly small agency. I think they have about 1,000 employees, the, the FMCSA specifically, and they're charged with regulating over 700,000 trucking companies in the United States. And so they just cannot, you know, watch over that many trucking companies and, and audit them. Uh, they just don't have the manpower to do that. So the way that they enforce the regulations is primarily through this prioritization system where they use these metrics to figure out which motor carriers are most at risk of, of causing serious accidents. And those are the ones that we're going to go in and, and uh, do audits and assess civil penalties and that type of stuff. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, yeah. Uh, when you say it like that, it definitely makes a lot of sense. I mean, even thinking about my my role in the industry as a, a you know owning a dispatch company, um, I've gone through hundreds, countless 
uh, broker carrier agreement. Mm -hmm. And there's always going to be that clause in there that says you must have a safety rating of at least satisfactory. And if you and if it changes, you're required to reach out to us and let us know. Um, So when you say like that, that definitely makes sense. And, you know, you kind of just it was like a full circle moment of all the times I've looked at. Uh, the safer snapshot of a mm-hmm. of a carrier, and sometimes they didn't have a rating in there. And it's, yeah, you just said it's because they had not been audited to that point. Okay. Yep, that's right. Yeah, and again, that's the majority of the carriers in the country. I think the I think it's north of eighty percent of the motor carriers operating in the United States do not have a safety rating. Wow! 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 Okay. Yeah. See, I, I appreciate that, man. <laughs> well, look, I feel as though I've asked. Uh, so I've thrown so many questions at you <laughs> and you've you've really just been very thorough in your response to all of them. Uh, was there anything that we did not get a chance to talk about or anything that you will want to say at this point? Oh, man, there are a million topics we could talk about. I guess the thing I will close it out with saying is. Um, the importance of being proactive. If you're a trucking company, uh, regardless of how big you are, um, I'm imploring you to be proactive when it comes to your compliance program. Too often I find trucking companies are reactive to these types of things. They only concern themselves with these issues when it's become a problem. So when you know they're getting the knock at the door for the audit, and now their hair's on fire and they're trying to figure out what they need. And by the time you're at that point, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. If you haven't been proactive to that point and making sure that you have all your files and your records in order and that your drivers are doing what they need to do for pre and post trip inspections and keeping track of their hours, um, there's just too much going on for you to try and fix those things once they've present themselves as a problem. So you got to develop a plan ahead of time. You really got to make sure you've got that stuff in order ahead of time so that you don't find yourself in that situation down the road. Well, gotcha, gotcha. I definitely concur with that. That's some great advice right there. Um, Well, look, man, that's everything that I have for this evening. I did want to just say uh, thank you so much for joining me here on the Transportation and Logistics Clubhouse. And, uh, you know, if there's ever anything I can do, uh, please let me know. Uh, you, you got a fan in me, brother. You handle these questions thoroughly, I will say that. <laughs> so anything I can do to help, I'm happy to do it. Hey, I appreciate that, and I really appreciate you having me on. It was great. And uh, if there's anything else I could do for you or your listeners, uh, don't hesitate to reach out to me, just trucksafe.com. Uh, will do. Oh, yeah. Matter of fact, trucksafe.com. Is there anywhere else that you would want people to, uh, that people can find you? Yeah, so we're pretty active on uh, LinkedIn. If you've got LinkedIn accounts, we're posting content uh, there pretty much daily. Uh, a lot of free content, a lot of YouTube videos on, you know, all kinds of DOT compliance topics. So just follow us if you're interested in that information. And uh, yeah, reach out if you have any specific questions. All right, perfect, perfect. Well, look, everybody, uh, that's it for this evening. Tune in on Monday, 7.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time as we partner with Freightwave Sonar Team uh, to let you know where to position your trucks to take advantage of the market. And uh, I think I might have another discussion Monday night. Um, But look, it's going to be a good one. We're going to be talking about port operations and the insurance that you need in order to do it. So I'm looking forward to that. 
Um, well, yeah, that's it. Uh, Brandon, again, thank you for your time, brother. Everybody have a blessed weekend. Finish out this fourth quarter strong, okay? That's it. That's all I have. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. All right, now. Peace.